Some of you will know uh, Lionel Young. I'm going to invite you up, Lionel. Lionel and Stacy have worshipped at our church for over a year, just a bit over a year, kind of came in the, in the midst of the pandemic when we were uh, also frozen and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but Lionel has been, uh, uh, is a, a fellow at the Cambridge Center for World Christianity. Do I, do I have that right? Yeah. And it was a pastor in Valparaiso, Indiana for many years. And it's just been a delight to get to know he and Stacy. Uh, they have three grown sons who live here in the Central Texas area as well. Um, and so it's just a real delight to have Lionel come and open God's word. And as is our custom, I'm going to ask you where you're seated just to extend a hand. And I'm going to pray for Lionel as he comes to open God's word. Gracious God, we thank you for Lionel. We thank you for the gift that he is to our community. We thank you for your word and the Holy Spirit that inspired the writing of this word, the, these words and is present to us as well. And we ask now that uh, the gift of your spirit, the gift of your word, and the gift that Lionel is to our community would combine this day um, to proclaim your word to us. And we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to whatever it is you'd have for us. We pray your blessing, your encouragement, a sense of your delight and favor over Lionel for him as he preaches. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks a lot. Thank you for your kind introduction, Peter. Uh, I began uh, attending Church of the Cross just at the beginning of the pandemic, and we were fairly new to Austin, and so my oldest son decided to come and worship with me on that Sunday. And if, you know, you know what it's like to come to a new place of worship, you sort of want to blend in for a little while, especially if you're uh, more of an introvert, as I am. And so on that first Sunday we arrived, it was myself, my son, and Peter. <laughs> and Nick, and the tech person. So it was really hard to blend in. Um, but, but especially during the, you know, the exchange of peace, you know. Uh, but uh, it gave us an opportunity to get to know Peter. And uh, in, in, in time, we've gotten to know uh, several of you. And so I'm glad to be ministering the Word of God to you today. Um, during this season of Lent, we were focusing our expositions on the Old Testament reading. And the text for this Sunday is Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 11. May the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the book of Deuteronomy brings to mind the line attributed to the English writer Samuel Johnson, who wrote, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. The title of this book The book of Deuteronomy means the second law, or a repetition of the law. Old Testament scholars sometimes refer to Deuteronomy as a series of sermons preached by Moses before Israel enters into the land of promise. And one of the concerns of Deuteronomy was that the people of God would forget all that God had done for them. And listen to these words from Deuteronomy 6 earlier in the passage. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord." who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So having been through many dangers, toils, and snares, the people of God are now ready to turn the page on a a new chapter. They have been through pandemics, and they're ready for better days. Can any of you say amen to that? 
they have been wandering around looking for a place to call home. As we heard in our text, wandering, we were a wander, wandering Arameans, but now they have a place of their own, a place to call their home. Amen, Church of the Cross. We now have a place to call our home. And so what we have in Deuteronomy is actually an ancient liturgy for giving. And there are two liturgies in the text. The first in verses 1 through 11 was for a special offering called the first fruits. And the second, which we will not be looking at, was longer and for the regular tithe. One Old Testament scholar uses the title for this section, a liturgical confession. The African Bible commentary uses the phrase liturgy for the first fruits. Gerhard von Rod likes the expression, a small historical creed. Now, why do I belabor this? Well, there's a phrase in the Christian tradition that is especially important in Anglicanism, and it goes something like this, lex orande, lex credendi. The law of what is prayed is the law of what is believed. That is, and if I can paraphrase, our praying and our worshiping helps give shape to what we believe and helps provide guidance to the direction of our lives. Now, for those of you who did not grow up in a liturgical tradition, you're in very good company. I'm the descendant of a long line of Baptist ministers that go all the way back to the mid-19th century. Uh, When I was doing postgraduate research in England, I began attending an Anglican church. And by this time, I had been a pastor for many years. I had completed my MDiv. I had a you know, I'd been married for a long, quite a while, I had three children, and I remember going to an Anglican church thinking, I hope my mom and dad don't find out about this. <laughs> and then not long after that, I started going to pubs. You, know, you see the... Um, and I think I was, I really think I was more worried about mom and dad finding out about me going to an Anglican church, you know, and here I am, a grown man. But one of the things that I I noticed early on was that the prayers and the confessions and the creeds were so saturated with Scripture that really brought uh, my worship experience to to life. And, um, you know, those of you who grew up like me can recount many times when you've heard someone praying and you thought to yourself, that didn't sound quite right. I mean, but I'm sure God, you know, the Holy Spirit helped to translate that in some way. And... um, This was how I grew up. And I I work with Christians now all over the world, and I do not think the Anglican way is the only way. We need to be very careful about that. I remember our pastor has reminded of this this in our membership classes. I mean, there are some 2.5 billion Christians in the world, and about 85 million of those are are Anglicans, and about 80% of them live in Africa. So we're part of this larger Catholic Church that we confess our faith in. But I do believe the Anglican way is a good way. And I have greatly benefited from the pastoral guidance of our own David Taylor, who has helped formulate prayers for us that are rooted in the Christian tradition. What we see here is that the Lord gives the people of God words to say when giving. And in doing so, he is giving his people a ritual, a liturgy, so that when they give, they will not only know what to say, but they will also know how to think about things like land and cities and houses full of good things. We may say it simply, the liturgy was not just a ritual, it was a way for God to shape the attitudes of his people regarding all the material blessings he was planning to bestow upon them. 
And it is here that I, I really like the old French word habitude. I wish I could bring it back. It's, it's the idea of habits in the way we think. We often use the word attitude or worldview or values. I, I, again, I want to try to bring back the word habitude, but it's just this habit of my attitude. The way I think about all the good things God has given to me. And here, I want to offer up three words of encouragement. And I use the word encouragement because this is the style of Deuteronomy. We're being exhorted or encouraged using highly stylized homilies, probably. And we have these words of encouragement, three words of encouragement. And we're going to talk also at the conclusion about the relationship with this encouragement with the season of Lent. First, we're encouraged to rejoice in all the good things God has given us. And we, we see this turn of phrase in verse 11. It's, it's, it's very clear. You shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord has given to you and to your household. And the Hebrew word for rejoice literally means to take delight in, to enjoy, to take pleasure in. And the grammar is clear. Rejoice in all the good things the Lord has given you. Here is an encouragement while reciting the liturgy, that we are to delight in all the good things God has bestowed upon us. Notice there is no contradiction between worshiping God and enjoying his gifts in this text. The two are, in fact, brought together. You say, well, aren't we supposed to be talking about the mortification of the flesh on this first Sunday of Lent? It sounds like a, you know, a party passage. Um, we'll tie that in in just a moment. But I think it's important here on the first Sunday of Lent to observe that our reading does push back on some assumptions that people have about God. And here I recall the line from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. There's a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. And he replied that as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. <laughs> This is not what God is like. He bestows good things upon his people. He blessed creation. I mean, in creation, he calls it good. It is good, it is good, it is good. It is very good. And then he blesses us. In fact, Lewis reminds us elsewhere in Screwtape Letters that God is the one that created pleasure. Indeed, Satan has never been able to invent one. All he can do is cause us to use the pleasures God has created in the wrong way, which gets us closer to Lent now, repenting for the wrong ways in which we have understood pleasure and used those pleasures. The Christian tradition opposes dualism. That is the idea that some evil God created the material world and that evil God encourages people to have all the fun. And a good God created the spiritual world. These are Greek ideas, Persian ideas. We affirm as the creed teaches us that our, uh, in our, our faith in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of all things visible and invisible. He created everything. We believe that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, Psalm 24.1. We believe that God satisfies his people with good things, Psalm 103.5. We believe that everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. 
That is especially true when it comes to barbecue, Shinerbach, and Bluebell ice cream. All of these things are good. We believe, thank you for that amen over there. We, have, we believe he has created everything for our enjoyment, 1 Timothy 6.17. We believe that Christ came in the flesh, which created real problems from, for those in the first century who, who kind of bought into this proto-Gnosticism or this dualism. That, you know, what do we do with Christ now? Did he really come in the flesh? Yes, he did. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life to come. God created all things visible and invisible. And he did so for our good and his glory. So the ancient liturgy encourages the enjoyment of good things, but sets the enjoyment of good things in their proper place. So that as we are enjoying all the good things God has given us, we are worshiping the God who has given us everything for our enjoyment. And this is the meaning of the 17th century doxology that we sing almost every week. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. All blessings. The Anglican theologian J.I. Packer observed that, that contempt for pleasure often leads people into pride. Remember Paul warned about this. Those, of, those in Galatians and Colossians specifically, those who teach do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. And, and Packer wrote... In the order of creation, pleasures are meant to serve as pointers to God. Pleasure is divinely assigned to raise our sense of God's goodness and deepen our gratitude of him and strengthen our hope of richer pleasures to come in the next world. Second, we are encouraged to remember all the mighty things God has done for us. Recall that you were a wandering Aramean, an expression that would evoke images of their ancestor Jacob who moved from place to place, sometimes on the run and in search of a place to call home. The phrase can also refer to the idea of being a misfit, an outcast, someone who does not belong. And, and you notice even in the text that this, this enjoyment of good things is to include the Levite as well as the foreigner as a reminder that God has blessed us with good things as an act of worship, but also remember that you too were a foreigner. I work with a, a global nonprofit, and as, as Peter uh, mentioned in his introduction, an organization that studies Christianity in the global south. And we are right now working with pastors and friends who are in Ukraine. And uh, we have equipped some 1,000 leaders in Ukraine over the last 20 years or so, and I've been moved so much by stories as I've been on calls every morning with our director. Right now, pastors are taking their wives and their children to places of safety on the board, borders of Slovakia, Poland, and Hungary, and then returning to shepherd their flocks and care for those who are weak and care for children and orphans and the elderly. And uh, watching these images of people who are fleeing, um, certainly uh, 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 it's, a, it's an emotional experience and a reminder just of what it, it must have been like for the people of God who were fleeing, who were without homes. Uh, some of you may have seen the image of the, the, the one little boy who was, who, was, who was fleeing and just crying. I mean... I mean, this, this liturgy would evoke those images of times when we had no home and we did not know where to go. 
And this liturgy was to remind the people of God, hey, don't forget about that. Don't forget about those days. And God has now given you a home. And this was something the people of God had experienced again and again. Remember, they were mistreated and made to suffer. But you cried out to God, and the Lord heard your voice and saw your misery. We read this also in Psalm 91. What a beautiful statement about God. It says something about who God is. He hears us when we cry out to him. He's not indifferent to our pain and our suffering. And the poetic imagery of God acting with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with terror, with signs and with wonders is a reference to the Exodus narrative. Sometimes God just shows up and he makes a big scene and says, I'm here and I'm upset about what is happening to my children and I'm going to deliver them what J.R.R. Tolkien called eucatastrophe, where God just turns everything around. And haven't we all had those moments in our lives where God just stepped in and intervened, and it was a eucatastrophe. God just turned it all around. And here we're told to remember that God has done these good things for you. Finally, we are encouraged to respond to the Lord's generosity with worship. The Hebrew scholars who work on passages like this have pointed out that there is a poetic structure that's often lost to us as English readers. The Hebrew word give, yatan, is repeated seven times throughout verses 1 through 11, and it goes something like this. The Egyptians gave us affliction. I'm going to shorten it. The Egyptians gave us affliction. God gave us deliverance and good things, and we give back to him in response to his goodness to us. Now, in the Christian tradition, we do make much of what God has given us through Christ. But it is not because all of God's other gifts are unimportant. It is because God's gift to us through Christ is the greatest gift of all. In fact, Tolkien called the resurrection the the greatest eucatastrophe, where God turned that story around. And his plan is to turn the story of this world around in a magnificent way. And by the way, for those of you who are new to the Christian faith and you're still wrestling with whether or not you want to believe this gospel, again, I would remind you of what Tolkien said to Lewis, that Lewis was an undergraduate at Oxford, or, or I'm sorry, a professor at Oxford at this time. Not quite a professor yet. He had to go to Cambridge for that. But he was teaching at Oxford. And Tolkien said to him, uh, Jack, you, uh, you love myths. You love great stories until you read the Gospels. And then you don't like magic anymore. And Lewis began to realize that the Gospel was a magnificent story. The only difference is it was a true myth. Working on us like all the other myths, but it's a true myth. For those of you who are thinking about Christianity, I would say this is the greatest eucatastrophe, the greatest gift God has given us, Christ. But finally, how do we relate this to the season of Lent? Well, the word, as you know, is from an old German word that refers to the lengthening of days. It has been observed in many different ways in the church. Practices were very simple in the early church, but developed over time and unevenly between Western Christians and Eastern Christians. They were modified during the Reformation. And so I would encourage you not to get too caught up in exactly how God wants you to observe Lent. We can just follow our pastors as they guide us through this season. 
But it is in this season where we enter into the desert with Christ. And this was the title of the book of Deuteronomy in Hebrew, in the desert. We go back to the desert and remember, we enter into the desert. We reflect on our own immorality and failure. We even choose to fast or make personal sacrifices. And here it is that Augustine puts this passage in perspective for me. There is indeed beauty in physical objects, in gold, in silver, in all things, and all the good things God has given us. But in striving after these, we must not depart from you, nor stray from the path of your law. Even the life we live here has its own charm, but all such things may be occasions for sin when we incline toward them more than we ought. It is true that these lesser things have their delights, but none like my God, the maker of all things. So we should enjoy the good things God has given us, but the call of Deuteronomy and the whole of Scripture is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind, because only He can truly and completely satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts, no matter how many good things He gives us. Only He can satisfy us. The gifts are good, but the one who has given us every good thing is greater. And so we mourn when we have sometimes turned the gifts into idols. Sometimes we need to say no to something good to remind us we do not worship anything that God has blessed us with. These lesser things have their delights, but none like our God, the Maker of all things. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.